Welcome to the Newberry Tart Podcast. Your hosts, Marcy and Jenny, are talking and drinking their way through Newberry award-winning books, past and present. We have a new sponsor, Little Shop of Stories, located in Decatur, Georgia. It is possibly the best bookstore in the known universe. It's a local, independent children's bookstore, but they're so much more than just a bookstore. If you've never shopped there, you're missing out. You can call and speak to a bookseller anytime to get personalized recommendations and follow them on social media to keep up with the many, many events they organize. You can find them online at littleshopofstories.com and they ship all over the world. Hi, and welcome back to the Newberry Tart Podcast. I'm Marcy. And I'm Jenny. And today we're talking about 1922 Newberry Honor Book, The Windy Hill by Cornelia Miggs. I have the uh, the annotation here from the ALA Guide to the Newberry and Caldecott Awards. The Windy Hill by Cornelia Meggs, illustrated by Elmer and Berta Hayter. A brother and sister visit their older cousin in New England. Their cousin was once jovial, but is now mysteriously irritable and preoccupied. A chance meeting with the bee man leads to their hearing stories about their own family's history. As they listen, the two children start to understand the cause of their cousin's anxiety. Never in my life have I heard of a bee man and the entire book, they act like this is something everyone knows. <laughs> okay. Well, I haven't heard it used as like a specific term, but it didn't seem unusual to me at all that like if two kids ran across a strange dude who had a bunch of beehives and he was always doing bee stuff, they might be like, oh yeah, the bee man. I, I got that, but I also just felt like it was an official title somehow. <laughs> and I had never in my life heard it used like heard those words used like that, I guess, together, which, you know, just, I, I don't know. So yes, I, I was, I was curious about whether or not it was common terminology. Not in my experience. And for those of you who don't know, Marcy is actually a beekeeper. This is true. Are you like a master beekeeper? I am. I am. <laughs> which doesn't actually mean that I'm like, ooh, super amazing at beekeeping. It's just that there's, um, through the university system of Georgia, there's a, a series of like courses and examinations and tests that you can do to, to get to that certification. So it's a little bit, I mean, there's practical tests as part of it, but it's more of an academic thing than, than, you know, somebody who's been out there beekeeping for, you know, 30 years and really knows their stuff. What kind of tests do they do? They just throw you in a, a beehive and see what happens? <laughs> no. <laughs> Although that would be fun. No, it wouldn't be yeah, fun. See, maybe that's the difference. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, there's levels. So there's like a, a certified beekeeper, which is like the beginner level. And then there's journeyman and then there's master. And then there's master craftsman, which there are very few of. That's very difficult. I'm just at the master level. But they, you know, there's written tests about like bee diseases and anatomy. And there's one of the more notoriously difficult little levels of the test is at the journeyman level where they give you a collection of pinned insects and you have to identify, you know, there's, I think there's like, I don't, I don't even remember anymore. You have to study them all and it's a different selection every time, but to try to identify between, you know, 50 different varieties of bees, which can all be, you know, it could be a queen bee, which looks different than a drone bee, but like that is within each species. So identifying all of those can be kind of difficult. You have to demonstrate that you know how to use your equipment and do a hive inspection. And there's a bunch of requirements you have to fulfill as far as uh, showing honey, which demonstrates that you know what you're doing. 
and uh, a whole bunch of just various different tasks. But it's all actually kind of fun. No, I mean that sounds it's fascinating. I to me, I'm like there's b there's a b. <laughs> well, so I that's don't want thing. to sting me, and I, but I know that I know that all the like benefits and all the things that the bees do, and that they're great on the whole. They're great, although wasps, I don't really see a need for having been stung in various private places by wasps over the years. <laughs> me too, honestly. That's one of my earliest bad memories in elementary school: is a bee flying up my skirt. Uh, I've had that happen, uh, uh, variations. Um, I've had that happen a couple of times in my life and I can, I could do without that and those. (laughs) But honeybees in particular are very docile. And actually I really enjoyed that part of this book because Cornelia Miggs, whatever else you might say about her, uh, which we'll get into as far as the writing, but the bee information is very accurate. And she's talking about Italian bees, which are in fact like a very gentle wonderful kind of bee to cultivate and they were kind of the earlier americana kind of bees and they were replacing the the they weren't in in this book they call them like kind of the wild bees which implies that they're native but they're not they're german black bees which were the first introduced honeybees but they were very aggressive and difficult to deal with are there native to america bees that are honey not, like honeybees not honeybees no they all came oh, over wow. on yeah they all came over with with colonists and some of them got here earlier than others and sort of naturalized. And that's why like your early, you know, Daniel Boone kind of stories have, Oh, they always have that thing where like somebody finds a beehive in a tree trunk and tries to get the honey out and they have to run and cover themselves in mud or whatever. But like they just, Winnie the Pooh. Yes. But they just got here earlier than other bees. And then later settlers brought in better varietals like the Italian bees or carniolans or you know, Russian bees are really good too. So, but Italian bees are very, very famous for being gentle. Wow. Yeah. That's, yeah. I, I was really curious about what you would have to say about the bee content because I, I did find that really engaging and I thought it was really interesting. Obviously, there's other parts of the book that I, I mean, I did not, but I did really enjoy those parts. So I'm glad to hear that she did well, you know, as far as like factually on those. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she characterized the bees very well. And I know that's a weird sentence, but, um, (laughs) but as far as like the premise of how they even meet the bee man, where he's, he's going in clearly without any kind of veil or any kind of modern equipment that you would use to keep yourself safe. Like you can just use a smoker or even not a smoker with an Italian bee colony that knows you and they will just kind of buzz around you. They don't get mad. So how can a bee know you? Is it your smell? Is it your your sound vibrations? What? <laughs> There's some debate, actually. Um, bees have pretty good eyes, so that's why beekeepers always wear Oh, God. I don't want to think about them looking at <laughs> Well, that's how come beekeepers always wear white, because bees associate dark colors with danger, and the theory is that bears are more of a predator for beehives. So, like, they associate, like, big dark shapes with with predators, whereas if you wear white... You get the opposite reaction, but it's true that that bees actually do get to know their beekeeper, and I don't know whether it's through scent or sight or what, but over time they get very acclimated to you, and that's where that whole tradition comes from. Of like, if a beekeeper dies, somebody has to go out and tell the bees. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah. yeah, it's like a superstition, but they do know their beekeeper. So if you think okay. about it, it would be very very weird, you know, to have one beekeeper all the time and then they're just gone. Okay, telling the bees, does that involve a dance? <laughs> it really ought to, don't you think? Mm-hmm. No. Yep. 
It just takes somebody else going out and telling them. <laughs> I heard that they did that with the Queen's Bees. Oh. Was she really spending a lot of time out in the beehive? Doubtful. Doubtful. Yeah, but, that's what I like. <laughs> But who knows? I mean, she spent a lot of time in stables, so it's possible. Yeah, I just don't. Uh, well, that just flies in the face of, of my image of what she was doing. But I mean, who knows what she was doing any, at any given time, you know? So all this time, everyone's been focused on the corgis, and we should also be thinking about her poor bees. I know. Well, I saw that her one of her horses, one of her ponies, was at the funeral. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm always here for animal content, but I don't really have <laughs> anything know. else to say. Yeah. Well, anyway, bee bee content aside, how did you like this book? I, I mean, it was better. It was it was better to read than the others, but I still didn't. Still didn't really like it, and uh, <laughs> and then also there were some there were some rough passages talking about native native peoples. Yeah, that that was that was an issue too. I mean, I'm trying really hard to put this in the context of being written in 1922. Well, you know, being in 1922 Newbury, which means it was published in 1921, which probably was written around 1920, but it is difficult to overlook i mean i i don't know i'm feeling much grouchier today and i'm like f context like <laughs> yeah. you know calling calling native americans dusky people and browns you know talking about the brown-skinned people and yeah. making up like making up stories nashola and his you know just i don't it, i just have no i have no uh not sympathy, but I have no, I guess, Fs left to like justify it. And I don't mean that as a personal attack on you in any way. No, no, not at all. It's just like, oh God, not again. It was jarring, but it did, as we've discussed in other books, this particular instance seemed less egregious than some of the others that we've read and well-intentioned at least. It just had a little too much of the like the noble savage thing going on. Yeah. I mean, I get what you're saying, but I also just am tired. And I, I you know, saying that right now when I know there's a lot more that we're going to encounter is just, you know, I, I know. think it's just fatigue, fatigue at, at like the old attitudes while I understand they existed and why they existed and how and when and all that stuff, I just am tired of it. So, And you're not wrong. Miami Book Fair is back in November with hundreds of your favorite authors and their new books, and you can see them in person and online. Come to downtown Miami or watch at home for best-selling children's and YA authors like Case and Calendar, Mary Pope Osborne, and R.L. Stein, the master of spooky tales and spine-tingling suspense. Rainbow Rowell, Chris Grabenstein, and Zoraida Cordova will also be there talking about love stories, mysteries, and mythical creatures like grumpy unicorns and fire-breathing chipmunks, plus story time, comics, arts and crafts, science experiments, music, robots, and other family fun in Children's Alley during Street Fair weekend. Stop by to learn how to play the drums, hang out with stilt walkers and balloon twisters, or write your very own poem. And there's lots of other cool stuff to do and see, too. Miami Book Fair starts Sunday, November 13th. Details at MiamiBookFair.com. The 
This is the story of a brother and a sister who are 13 and 15 who go to visit their cousin, who's a grown-up. Cousin Jasper. Cousin Jasper. And in the course of visiting, they run into the B-Man and his daughter Polly, and the B-Man likes to tell stories. So what we're discussing right now is the fact that one of the several stories that the B-Man tells is pertaining to a Native American village and specific characters there. And that comes up later, too. And there's he tells other stories in which, I'm going to use the word in quotes, Indians are mentioned. but And they all do relate to the family history and the, and the history of the town. But the particular, like the first story in particular, seems totally unnecessary. Didn't you think that? Yeah, I thought so, too. Because, I mean, the only, like, the other stories have to do with specific people who are their ancestors who have an impact on the culmination of, like, the overarching story. But the stories within the stories mostly serve a point, except that first one that is specifically about Native Americans, except to have the main character in that story be the person who their ancestor eventually bought their land from. Like the story that happens has nothing to do with the rest of the story except to establish that Native American as like particularly noble. Yeah, I don't, it it really. To, uh, huh. It does nothing to further the plot. It does nothing to further the plot and it just, it just hangs there. And it really has that whole like, to me it has that feel of like, now I'm telling you a story about this ex- these exotic people and this thing that happened that and it it also serves to show like you know how wonderful the ancestors are. It did serve it, you know this idea of like these white people and and kind of their feats of heroics. And I also I could not stand but at the end when they were like Many of these dusky people, my apologies for the quote, you know, went across the across the seas like like they had choi- a choice. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, they went because they got kidnapped. Like, yeah. And then and then toward the end of the, the bigger story, the frame story, when they're like, oh, yeah, and we bought our land from this Native American and – our ancestor was pretty great, so hopefully it wasn't for just, like, a gun and some trinkets. Like, there's no... <laughs> yeah. That that part was really just like, okay, we're going to take it on faith that this was, like, a really honorable transaction because they established earlier on that these are good people, but... Ugh. Well, they're good people by their standards, right? Yes. So, yes. like, it's, you know, it's not relative. It's, like, by modern standards, No. Well, and I think it kind of – the story is a little muddled in general because they've got this other cousin, Anthony, who is a, a horrible, horrible villain. And he's doing everything he can to, like, take the town from Cousin Jasper because Cousin Jasper owns everything. And I just – like, they, I feel like by the end of the story, they've tried to – redeem Anthony to the point where it seems like he's a good person who made bad choices. But then they're trying to say that their earlier ancestor was a good person who hopefully made good choices. And you're like, there's no evidence of this. So like this whole thing could be predicated on predatory 
like buying activities where you stole the land from the Native Americans. And it just seems sketchy and creepy. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm betting on them. It was predatory. Like I don't have, like, there's no doubt in my mind that it was predatory. <laughs> well, I mean, with, I, it's, you know, uh, maybe by, and not by their standards, but definitely by modern standards. Well, I mean, it reminds me of the arguments about consent. Like a 16 year old can think they're consenting to a relationship with a 30 year old, even though this is in a totally different arena, but like the power imbalance is such that it doesn't matter how much they think they're consenting. Like it's just not possible. Yeah. You know, and it's like that with this, like these. (laughs) So that's, that's a basic problem that I have with this book. Yeah. It's a basic problem. It, it also is just, I mean, it's, it's boring. Well, okay. I actually. In parts. It's boring <laughs> in parts. Like it just goes on and on. And like, it just, <clears throat> like I said, I'm sorry if I'm just in a grump, maybe in a grump mood, but like, it just does not, I, I can't, I cannot see a modern reader reading this and being interested at all. I mean, I would read it, but it's, it's not. My favorite, but it is well-written to me, and it was so much more readable than the other two that we've read for this season. I think I was a little bit traumatized by the Greek myth one, and so, like, when they start to launch into other stories, I was like, no, no. (laughs) And it does does really derail the main narrative, even though the stories, except for the first one, are pertinent and necessary for the plot— it's not obvious why or how until the end, and it really, really slows the momentum of the main narrative. But aside from that, like the the inset short stories are actually probably the most readable part of the book. I mean, sure, they're fine. I, you know, <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I just, I mean, maybe, maybe I'm just have a bad attitude, and like, I just, I can't. I'm not going to get past it. And the season is like everything I'm going to dislike. I don't know. It's but okay. I just didn't, I just, I didn't feel like the characters had a lot to them. I didn't feel like there was really that much tension. It was like, I don't know. It just was like, okay, I, you know, this is a story, but I don't even know why it's, you know, like, I, I don't know the right way to say it. I don't know why I'm being told this story. Well, okay. So I have problems with different aspects of this, and it almost doesn't feel finished to me. Like it feels like a first draft that needs some work. Which I can I can agree with that, yeah. <laughs> but I do like a lot of it. Like, like I said, I find it very readable. It reminds me of some other uh, books that I enjoy, which I'll talk about um, when we get to the read-alikes. So I I do like this style of story. I like this style of writing in general. It's just that some of the specific things related to plot especially kind of fall short. So toward the end, uh, Anthony gets his comeuppance because there's this big flood that happens and it's his fault. But he capitulates so quickly after being this like hard villain the whole time. And he confesses all of his shortcomings to a 15-year-old boy who he's met like once. It, that seems extremely unrealistic, and it is the crux of the whole, you know, climax of the story. So that really took away a lot for me. And then the solution to the problem lies in 
like legal documents, which is not <laughs> <laughs> it's historical you know legal documents. What? You know what kids love more than the Magna Carta? <laughs> oh my god. Historical legal, legal documents. documents. <laughs> I mean, what kid isn't like, give me some of that sweet, sweet legal documentation to read for fun. So that was, that was an issue. (laughs) Plus they didn't even specify what the solution was, right? They're like, we have a pile of papers here and it solves everything. (laughs) And you're like, but how, (laughs) if you're, if you're going to rely on the fact that, that being lawyers is an exciting grown up job that causes all this drama and the solution is legal documents, you need to at least say what they are. Yeah. But, but just the, just the promise, just the (laughs) promise mercy of legal documentation is enough for all kids to just be so excited. It is satisfying and to to a story. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when the whole tone of, of, the mis- like this is supposed to be a mystery, right? And the whole tone is very gothic and foreboding. And you're like, ooh, there's going to be some sort of dramatic business. It's going to be a ghost or a the wife, no. wife in the attic or a murderer or something. No. And you're like, oh, papers. It's papers. Wow. I mean, it, it was the 1920s. It's not like paper was scarce or new. <laughs> it just felt like it was leading up to more than that, you know? It, it did and then it didn't. Know, like it just felt like okay, or at least, is- or at least some kind of more dramatic happening. Because like, the, yes, the flood that is the issue at the end is dramatic, but there was so much foreshadowing of that that it was not a surprise at all. Oh, you weren't surprised? <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's a very predictable. Like all of the things that are revealed are extremely obvious. Like one of the main things is that Oliver almost almost runs away and goes home because he doesn't want to meet this girl Eleanor because he's convinced that she's going to be like all prim and proper and stuffy, which for some reason is enough to make him run away. And then he, when he runs away, he meets the B-man and Polly, and he loves Polly, and it turns out, of course, that Polly is Eleanor. And it's the most predictable thing ever, ever. Yeah, I thought that was really clunky. I was like, okay, you know. I'm, I don't. I don't know. But like then, so in the middle of like the mysterious parts, Oliver is called upon to drive his uncle somewhere because apparently his uncle can't. No, I mean drive his cousin somewhere because apparently Jasper can't drive, and Jasper makes him drive him somewhere mysterious. But so he's asking this 15 year old to drive him somewhere in his car, which in the 20s, I get that you like to to remember a passage from the Roald Dahl autobiography, like you had to take a half hour lesson and that was that. <laughs> like that's, mm-hmm. like that's all you need to drive a car. But still after that, he tells this kid, oh, you must be bored. Take the car out whenever. Like, I think that that was one super unrealistic also just to be like, oh yeah, like this is a big novelty and very expensive. Have fun. Go to town. But also I thought that maybe that would at least like lead up to like some kind of dramatic car crash or, you know, some, <clears throat> something, something that like had to do with something else. And it just, it just didn't. I had a question about, was this supposed to be set in the twenties? Oh, that's a good question. I could not figure that out. I mean, it was definitely set in New England in a time when 
a car, judging by like the farmer's reactions to the car, was something to be envied. Like just the fact that they had a car, like they they talked about the farmers like eyeing the car with envy. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it, it never specifies really. Sometimes it felt like, you know, definitely of that time. And then sometimes it felt like it was older. Yeah. But it couldn't have been much older because of the car. So it's, it's a, I don't know. It's an oddly written book. It just Mm -hmm. feels uneven. And like you said, a little clunky, but the, I don't know how to explain this one, but like the writing in between, like the, the actual writing was good. Mm. I thought we're going to agree to disagree. <laughs> like I, it wasn't, as, let's it, say aspects to me, of it the was, writing were good. Yeah. To me, it was, you know, it just, like I said, it didn't have any much tension and it kept building stuff up and then not paying off. And I just, you know, after a while, it just wasn't, it was like, okay, when is this going to be over? <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe, I don't know, maybe in my, my best, opinion. In my best at your voice. <laughs> I I also, one of the things that I like most about the books that I really like is the world building. So while I, I don't love this book, I found it fairly passable and I really liked the world building part of it. Like you really did get a good sense of where they lived and the like the, the passage of time, where they lived and how it had changed things and how things had stayed the same and I don't know. I think I think we definitely will agree to disagree about this book, even though for me it was still mediocre. <laughs> but I think you definitely disliked it. I'm good. I've read it. I I did it. I don't want to do it again. <laughs> I did, don't think th- do it again. There was one part where I truly wanted to slap Oliver, which was when he was trying to make a cup of tea. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like the the housekeeper is stuck somewhere with with Oliver's sister Janet and nobody is home but Oliver and cousin Jasper and the housekeeper calls and is like I'm not going to be able to get home for hours and poor Jasper is is starving he hasn't eaten since lunch which that's her huge concern with all of this it's like can you make him a cup of tea and Oliver goes down to the kitchen which he can't even find the kitchen he can't find the light. He knocks stuff over. And then he's like, I'd give anything for a, any woman, any girl. And like he makes some horrible, disgusting mess because he, of course, doesn't know how to cook because he's not a woman. And then finally Polly shows up and he's like, thank God she can cook. And I'm just like, I want to slap God. him right in his face. I know we're going to run into more of this. And I guess, I, you know, that definitely is was a prevalent social attitude, if not, well, the dominant social attitude of the time and in many of our books, uh, no matter what the setting, pre nineteen sixty something, yeah, you know. So, but the intentional helplessness. Well, but I feel like that's that's something that people do, right? Like they still do it. They still do it. They'll be like, I don't know how to do it, so they'll try, quote unquote. And it won't work. And then, like, they won't have to do it again because they either made such a big mess or they, you know, someone takes pity on them. Yeah, I know. I've, I've, I know a lot of people who do intentionally bad jobs at things because they don't want to do it. <laughs> and it's extremely frustrating. And to see a woman writing this book portraying that as totally normal and like, oh, thank God, here comes Polly. She can at least make some tea was extremely irritating. 
What a lovable scamp. <laughs> He's a moron who can't boil water. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, yeah, I, I didn't really like his character. I, I, you know, was happy to see the book close on him. So. Ugh. And I, I, this is terrible because, like, I'm the one who liked it and I'm sitting here and like, and this and that and this and that. <laughs> well, maybe you didn't like it. Yeah. You just didn't mind it. Yeah. And then you don't ever have to think about it ever again. I will. Well, we kind of do because Cornelia Meggs also won a Newbery, and this is one of three honor books that she got. Yes, but I'm hoping that the other ones are a little bit better. Well, yeah. So she's the most famous for her biography of Louise May Alcott, and so her book, Invincible Louisa, 1934 that she won. Okay, because Clearing Weather was an honor in 1929 and Swift Rivers was an honor in 1933. My only hope is that since this is such an early book of hers that she just got better. <laughs> I mean, we can hope. We can hope. We'll find out. <clears throat> we'll, uh, we'll keep you all apprised because I think we might not hit the 20s or 30s again for a little while after this to kind of cleanse our palates, but we will have to come to back, come back to them eventually. Well, yeah, I mean, we will be. Actually, we're going to be going into 1934 in a few seasons. Oh, okay. So we will be reading The Invincible Louisa. And when we do that, we'll actually be talking a little bit more about her in depth. As Marcy said, she had three Newbery honors and she won a Newbery medal. She was a professor. At Bryn Mawr, mm -hmm. which is actually where she went to college, too. Yeah. And she wrote quite a few books. They all seem to be kind of nature-themed, or at least nature-named. So I'm, I'm not sure because I haven't read I think they're um, all like historical as well. Okay. And she wrote, um, she had a pen named Adair Alden. I, I mean, I often think of pen names are usually pretty sexy or like, you know, something kind of a little different. Adair Alden doesn't really, isn't really... Uh, Nom de plume that I would say is, is inspiring a lot of uh, excitement. Well, maybe she just got famous enough that she wanted to be very incognito. Maybe. The, the illustrators, they were Berta and Elmer Hader. And Berta was born in Mexico and Albert was born in California. And, you know, they met and got married and they did a lot of illustrating and, and writing together. And my favorite of their titles listed is Ding Dong Bell, Pussies in the Well. Oh, God. Well, Which I know it has to do with a cat, but I'm I'm horrible, and I just like <laughs> think that's funny to say. I also found this website. It's called Hater Connection, and I think it was established by by their niece, and I'll make sure to include that in the show notes. But they've got – it's got beautiful galleries of their illustrations and a lot of information about their lives and how they illustrated together. There's also a little funny little picture on the homepage of them together, and Berta is wearing a little newspaper hat, and it's adorable. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm interested to learn more about them. I did not do enough research about them because I was wondering if they worked on this together or, or how that worked because my book, my copy, I don't know about yours, very slim on the illustrations. There's just a cover imprint illustration that looks like a woodcut of a tree, and then a front like a frontispiece that is extremely realistic drawing of a family. They're completely different styles. So I wondered if one did one and the other did the other. But there's not, it's funny that there's so much about them because those are the only illustrations in my whole book. It's, well, it's funny because I actually read mine again on Project Gutenberg and 
It is. Uh, there's one illustration. It's the very, just the very beginning one. Okay. Um, I, for the cover. Because I, I'm pretty sure I have a second printing. It's very old. So I'm, I think these are the original illustrations. So yeah, I was just really wondering about that because I didn't think they would be called the illustrators of this if they did m- more later, you know. Mm-hmm. But that's another good point to bring up about Project Gutenberg. I was going to say, it's very difficult to find a copy of this book. Like, even my copy is falling apart, library discard, you know, a very early edition, but not not a first. But if you want to read this, it is available on Project Gutenberg, and you can see a scan, a plain text, or just a Kindle version. So it's widely available that way. We'd like to say thanks again to our sponsor, Little Shop of Stories, our local independent children's bookstore, for helping to make this podcast possible, both financially and through their phenomenal programming. They're offering an exclusive promo for our listeners when you shop online at littleshopofstories.com. Just use the promo Newberry Tart to get 10% off your purchase. That's Newberry with one R, N-E-W-B-E-R-Y-T-A-R-T, to get 10% off your purchase. As far as our 100th anniversary stuff goes, I just wanted to speak a little bit about Frederick Melcher. So Frederick Melcher was born in 1879, and of course, he was the the bookseller and publisher who helped establish with ALA the Newbery Medal and then later on the Caldecott Medal. So he was involved in um, publishing starting in 1898. Throughout his career, he co-founded Children's Book Week, which of course is still still celebrated. He worked for the R.R. Boker Company. In 1954, he was a founding member of the National Book Committee, and he was also involved in anti-censorship and copyright issues. So he was a very, very interesting person. He had a lot of education and a lot of experience in the publishing world. And so to me, I thought that was super interesting to have him reach out to the American Library Association, you know, to create the Newbery Medal. Because, you know, I think as we see, if you get the Newbery Medal, you you experience a big spike in sales, of course, of the book that's honored or wins. And then all your books before and after experience spikes as well. So there is a definite commerce side to this medal, which I think is really interesting and was there from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. And it's really funny because in the Horn book and then at the Harvard Square Library page, there are accounts written on the Harvard site by his son, Daniel Melcher, about his father. And then there's a Melcher by marriage Sue Melcher, she wrote an article for the Horn Book in May of 2022 about her husband, Frederick G. Melcher II. His grandpa was was uh, the first, Frederick Melcher. So it's really interesting because there's family photos included and there's pictures of him. And I think often we think of the people who establish these awards as being you know, 1800s, yeah. <laughs> early 1900s, we're going to maybe have a drawing, maybe a really stern, you know, where they have to sit still for a long time picture, but we're not like an actual, good like photo. actual pictures yeah. of their families and ha- them having a good time and, you know, that kind of thing. So um, I find him, I found him very fascinating. I, it just seems like he really was involved in a lot of different aspects of the book, not just publishing, but book promoting. 
Yeah. And I think that's really special. So. Well, that's great. And it's, I think, part of a big part of why the awards got so important because the booksellers got behind it too, in addition to librarians. And uh, it helps them choose books for everybody every year. You know, I mean, every little bit helps when you're, when you're trying to find not only entertaining books for people, but like quality books for kids. It's helpful to have just like a baseline of these are some (laughs) definitively quality, good books for kids. Do you have any read-alikes for this book? I actually do, but they're not one-to-ones. I think I've said that before. But so talking about the kind of the insect aspect, <laughs> yeah. I would recommend King and the Dragonflies by Casey Calendar. And it's about a, a boy named King who believes that his recently deceased brother has returned as a dragonfly. So I, I you know, it's not necessarily a, I'm just going with the insect theme because I didn't really know where else to jump in. Yeah, sure. I've right? never even heard of that one. That sounds interesting. Yeah, it was actually the National Book Award winner for Young People's Literature in 2020. Very cool. And yeah, I mean, I just, it's just beautiful. It's lyrical. It's it's set in the South and it's got really realistic depictions of the bayou in Louisiana. From my my visiting, I can say that they seem realistic. And it's just, it's just, it's beautiful. You know, it's just a, a really touching story. And then I have to mention Bewigged by C.C. Bell, <laughs> which is a story of Jerry, a giant bee who no one, everyone's a scared, I'm sorry, story of Jerry, a giant bee who everyone's scared of and his journey into becoming a lovable part of the community. I love that book. I know it's, it's just a picture book, but like... It applies everywhere. Yes. Um, my read-alikes are basically the other Cornelia Miggs books. I've read some of them. haven't read others, but if you like her style of writing, she's written plenty. One of my other read-alike recommendations is Lucy Maud Montgomery. Her books, if you like the tone and kind of the general time period that this story is happening, you might like it, especially she's got some short story collections that are not related to Anne of Green Gables. She liked to write like darker feeling stories. And so if you like the slightly gothic mystery tone, especially in the beginning of this book, you'll probably like some of her other short story collections. She's got quite a few. One of them particularly is called Among the Shadows, which has a bunch of like mystery, darker themed stories. So those are always available. And then if you want something that is not at all literary, but has the same sense of here's a current story that's happening, but also incorporating backstory from the history of the family that's woven in and important to the current story. Books I loved when I was a kid, (laughs) maybe not so much now, but as a kid, I loved these. There's a pair of them. They're called Sweet Valley Saga. So it's basically the Sweet Valley High Girls, but their family going back to when they emigrated to America. And so like, it's kind of like star-crossed romance between the, the families that gets thwarted at every turn, but at different points in American history as the families move across the country and settle where they're going to settle. But it, it's interesting if you like that kind of book. It's definitely not literature, but it's it's fun. So those are my read-alikes. And we are happy that you were able to join us today. Thanks for listening. Next up, we'll be talking about The Great Quest by Charles Hawes. See you next time. Bye. Bye. 
Thanks for joining us today on the Newberry Tart Podcast. Please find us on social media. We're on all the usuals. And please rate and review us on whatever platform you listen. It helps other people find the podcast and helps keep us going. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Production assistance for Newberry Tart is provided by Raphael Siebenman and Liam Grove. Graphic design by Liz Mytinger. Intro and outro by Ariana Hargrave. Theme music for this podcast is provided by the laid-back and local Throckmorton Ukulele Band. You can hear more of their music on Facebook. Find more Newberry Tart episodes at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Our website is Newberry Tart. That's N-E-W-B-E-R-Y-T-A-R-T dot com.